All right, let's get started this morning. Our class is a little bigger this week. <laughs> wow. I don't know if I can teach anymore. <laughs> All right, let's get rolling. Let's start with prayer, and we will jump into our study for this morning. Uh, there are notes on the back table, so if you don't have those, you might want them. Uh, let's begin with prayer and then get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we have the privilege to gather. We thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel and a fallen, sin-cursed world where we sin and we also experience the effects of sin. Uh, Lord, we need you. We need the true hope that you provide, uh, that eternal hope that stretches beyond even this fallen world. We ask that you would help us as we uh, navigate these complex and challenge, challenging issues today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so to kind of review, I know we've got some people sliding in to class for the first time. Uh, the first week, uh, we talked about the identity of the person, who we are. This is fundamental to thinking through mental health. It's fundamental to thinking through some of the questions that we're dealing with here. Uh, and it is one of the big shortcomings of the secular mental health movement that they don't understand who they are talking about when they're talking about humans. And by that, I don't mean that they're wrong about everything, that they don't see anything. What I mean is simply that if you don't understand God, man, sin, fall, redemption, these fundamental aspects of who humanity is, how can you possibly speak completely and holistically to the situation that people find themselves in? So if one of the most fundamental aspects of our identity, uh, actually the most fundamental aspect of our identity, is that we are created in the image of God, if right from the start of humanity we have a fall that introduces sin and the curse into our world, and then you say, okay, I want to understand people and how people think and how they function, but I reject God and I reject sin, I reject the fall, I reject redemption, you might make some astoundingly clear observations, but you are going to miss fundamental aspects of what is going on. And so we talked about who we actually are. Uh, then last week, we delved into the contrast between the body and the soul, the, the immaterial and the material parts of us, and how those two things interact together. We are not spirits. We are not bodies. We are embodied spirits. We are not soul. We are not body. We are embodied soul. So your body affects your soul and your soul affects your body. Those who pursue lives of rebellion against God ought to expect that their body doesn't function quite like it should. And we see that all over the world, that when we violate God's intended plan for our soul, our body often suffers. On the flip side, we would expect that suffering in our body would affect our soul. And I've used the example many times because it's not very controversial of a child who is hungry and misbehaves as they are hungry. That child is responsible for his sinful actions. If he says no, if he disobeys, if he screams, if he cries, all of those actions are sinful actions that he bears responsibility for. Also, give the kid a snack. 
because we are affected by our body. And so now we're going to kind of turn our gaze a little more clearly onto the secular mental health movement. What's good? What's bad? What do we need to know? What should we reject? Some of those things as we think through these. Uh, Mental illness is an incredibly complex and scary thing to deal with. Uh, We often are outside of our comfort zone when we're talking about things like this. And so we tend to simplify. And actually that happens on both sides. A secular approach to the soul is going to simplify. It's going to reduce things down to something more manageable. On the other hand, a a, um, shallow theological approach will also tend to reduce things, to oversimplify things. And I have a quote up there from Oliver Wendell Holmes that I think is helpful. I would not give a fig for simplicity this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. We need to understand the complexity of the human situation so that we can give simple truth to it. But what often happens, the times that we feel like we are, uh, perhaps you've had counsel like this that feels trite and unhelpful when someone just slaps a Bible verse on your suffering. And so you're dealing with a major health diagnosis and someone's like, all things work together for good. And you're just like, thanks, appreciate it. (laughs) Hadn't read that verse before. Haven't had everyone quote it to me in the past two months before. Uh, it feels trite. Now, should Romans 8.28 be helpful to the person with a major health diagnosis? Absolutely. Is it a necessary truth that they should be reminded of? Absolutely. So why does it feel so lousy when you're suffering and someone just says, God works all things together for good? I think a lot of it is because you don't feel known. You don't feel like they're understanding the complexities of why you're feeling this way. It's just like, here's the one size fits all answer for everything. And I am going to suggest that as Christians, we have a tendency to do that and we ought not. The secular world has the same tendency, but they do it in different ways. So as we evaluate secular models, uh, what should we be doing? Well, secular models uh, may be helpful, but they need some humility. So if you were to talk to kind of boots on the ground, kind of the pop culture psychology sort of stuff, they tend to have an arrogance about how they approach the world. And so here we have the answer to all of the problems. Now, it's beside the fact, beside the point that they have lots of different mutually exclusive answers to the problems, right? But there's this feeling of expertise that's like, how dare someone who doesn't have their PhD or their MD in psychiatry, how dare that person try and minister to the soul of someone troubled with mental health issues? How dare they step on our ground and our expertise? The problem is their ground, their expertise, a, is missing the fundamental reality of God-man sin. So it's automatically not going to answer all of the questions. And B, it does not even agree with itself. You can read a textbook on psychotherapy. And you know what that textbook is going to be constructed around? The 40 different models of psychotherapy. 
Some that say sex is at the core of everything. Some that say power is at the core of everything. Some that say it's all about just your thinking pattern or acceptance is what you need. You need to accept your situation in life. There's all of these different theories, often mutually exclusive, as everyone says, yep, we have it settled. And so as we approach the, the, the mental health movement without needing to reject everything that they say and say that they always get everything as wrong as it possibly can be, we ought to recognize that there is an arrogance there that is not well-founded, all right? By the same token, Christian models also need the same humility. We also ought to be humble. We're not humble about whether the Bible is true and accurate or not, right? We're not like, well, maybe the Bible gives some good answers and they give some good answers and we'll figure out which are the best answers. Not that kind of humility. That's not humility. That's rebellion against God. But the kind of humility that says, I might not actually understand everything. I need to be thoughtful in how I apply scripture. I might not understand scripture itself as well as I should. Someone might take Romans 8, 28, rip it out of context and say that everything works together for good. Therefore, your suffering is going to go away. It's all going to be good. That kind of health, wealth, prosperity, gospel approach. They should have the humility to know they're not even understanding the Bible correctly. We might not understand the situation correctly. Uh, There's some Bible verses that we can take pretty vaguely and apply to everything. Like any conflict, we can be like, well, you should be quick to hear and quote, quote James at that person. Maybe they actually are quick to hear. And we're applying it to someone who's doing it, but we're using scripture as a club. We don't understand it well. We don't understand the situation well. So both secular models and Christian models ought to approach with some humility. Uh, Humility not about the authority of scripture, but humility about our application understanding of it. So how do we evaluate those secular models well? Start with knowledge of your model. Start with knowledge of your model. Proverbs chapter one, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to bring wisdom to bear on someone else's life, have wisdom that is grounded on the fear of the Lord. So before you get into the intricacies of how do I deal with someone with schizophrenia? What what should I do about my obsession to wash my hands 17 times every morning before I go out the door? What should I do with my friend who is prone to the highs of mania and the lows of depression? How do I deal with those? Those are hard questions. But if you don't have a grounding in the the biblical idea of humanity, of change, of sanctification, redemption, salvation, if you don't have your feet firmly planted there, as you you run into schizophrenia, you're going to be like, oh my goodness, what do I do with this? This is so far outside of anything that I possibly understand. Whereas the reality is, if we have a thoroughgoing understanding of God, man, sin, redemption, the schizophrenic comes to us and wants help. We might not know how to stop them from hallucinating, but we know, as 1 Peter 1 1 says, all that is necessary for life and godliness I can help a schizophrenic be godly even if I don't know how to stop the voices in their head. I can point them to Christ and say, hey, so you think the FBI is searching for you. You think the FBI is out to get you. So how would a godly person respond when the FBI is out to get you? 
How would they respond in that difficult situation? Because my focus ought to be on godliness. And in order for me to look at those situations, to look at the models of the world and identify strengths, weaknesses, flaws, perversions in them, I have to know the word of God first. I have to start with the fundamental understanding of who God is and how he interacts with his world. So I start with a knowledge of my own model. Then I consider what the secular model sees clearly. I consider what they see clearly. They're looking at the same person as I'm looking at. They might be seeing things that are accurate. They might have good vision on those things. They might be seeing uh, characteristics and trends. I mean, frankly, just the size of the data set that's available to someone who has a million dollar grant to study something. They have the ability to say, oh, we've studied 10,000 people who report this cluster of symptoms and this is what happens. Whereas I have a tendency to be like, yeah, I met this one guy one time and this is what was going on there. Right. So I've, I've mentioned my friend who I've dealt with, uh, who had bipolar. I remember after dealing with him, suddenly it seemed like everyone had bipolar. Like everyone was bipolar. Every single person met like, yeah, same thing again. Why? Because I had this like one cluster of symptoms like this person did crazy stuff. That person's doing crazy stuff must be the same crazy stuff. Right. Because we have this narrow view. Is there a benefit of having a large data set that can help us to to understand things? Sure. So we see what they see clearly. We recognize that people living in a fallen world are going to run into similar problems, whether they're believers or not. But then we consider how they interpret what they see. Right. So they see here is this cluster of symptoms. Uh, and a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about mental health diagnoses specifically and talk about the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is like the, the Bible of mental health. If you read the, the DSM, as you're reading it, all it does is list a bunch of symptoms. All it does is say, okay, someone who has this does this, 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 and this. They do it this many times, or if they do it this many times, they're at this level of it. And they do it in these contexts. If they only do it in this context, but not in that context, then they don't have it. But if they do it here, and it's just a description of symptoms. It's not an explanation. It's not an interpretation. Simply saying, hey, we have seen a tendency for people who do this to also do this, 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 and this. And they cluster. And so as we are evaluating a system, simply saying this cluster of symptoms we're going to define as oppositional defiant disorder and therefore oppositional defiant disorder. What most people think of when they hear, oh, this person has oppositional defiant disorder. It's a thing that they have. It's not a group of things that they do. Right. And so interpret thinking of interpretation. Someone says, I have borderline personality disorder. Okay. What they're saying there is that they have this deep fear of abandonment that causes them to kind of lose it whenever they think they're about to be abandoned. Okay. Oversimplification. But that's kind of a, a brief summary uh, of what borderline personality disorder is. But they say, I have this. And what they're doing is they're identifying like, here's the cause. Okay. Because I have this and you did this, I did that. And they're trying to explain their behavior, not describe their behavior. 
They're moving into the ground of interpretation. And here is where, biblically, we have the high ground. Because the Bible actually does explain why we do the things that we do. We are created in the image of God, but we have rebelled against him and we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. That's an explanation for what I do. It is not a description of what I do. And so as we're evaluating those models, we should consider what they see clearly, but then consider how they interpret what they see. Are they viewing this cluster of symptoms? I'm using their word. That's not a word that I would use. But as we view this cluster of symptoms, what are we missing? What are we misunderstanding? What are we overemphasizing? Are they simply symptoms and not fruits of the rebellious heart? Are they, uh, are they more broad? So take something like anorexia nervosa, the, the, the obsession with body image that causes someone to starve themselves. Okay, so we have this eating disorder. The Bible would say there's a heart issue. Secular psychology would say we don't actually know what's causing it, but you just have this thing that makes you do this. And don't hear me completely dismissing everything because they might then respond and say, okay, so let's help you cope better. Let's help you deal with it better. Let's actually equip you to respond in a better way. But even there, they're missing the idols of the heart that says how other people think of my body is the most important thing in my life. The Bible would say they need to repent of the idolatry in their heart. Psychology would say they need to cope better. You can see why scripture has the high ground on interpretation because it actually explains what is going on at the core. So what do they miss? What do they misunderstand? What do they overemphasize? Consider how they interact with the sufferer. What does the theory do? How does it interact with the sufferer? What does it actually do? Is it something like a, a Freudian psychotherapy where the goal is insight? Okay, so we're going to talk, and people don't use Freud so much anymore. They've developed on that. But are we talking about something where, like, if I just understand that this issue is because my mom potty trained me the wrong way, then I won't do it. That's saying insight, understanding, is the secret to change. Okay, so they're interacting with people by trying to give them insight or cognitive behavioral therapy. We'll try and interact with someone and try and get them to think better. So there'll be a list of 14 cognitive distortions, things that when you hear something, you interpret it, you make it real in your mind, and that might not be accurate, but then you respond to your inaccurate understanding. I actually find the cognitive distortions of cognitive behavioral therapy incredibly helpful. I have them saved on my notes app on my phone because I reference them all the time. They're really helpful. But what's their interpretation? Change the way that you think. Okay? Change the way that you think. Change, change your cognition. Right? So how does it interact with people? Both of those gain insight, change the way that you think. Take a, a pharmacological approach. Take this pill that will balance out your chemicals. All three of those, there are ways of interacting with the person, but there are ways of interacting with the person that don't say, repent. Or here is hope, here's comfort. I don't want to say everything is repent. We ought to comfort sufferers who are not sinful. We don't need to say that everyone's suffering is sinful. Read Job, okay, makes it really clear that's not how we always counsel. And so offer comfort because there's hope and deliverance through the gospel and through an eternity. Offer confrontation because repentance is necessary when there is sin. 
Those are on the level of interpretation. So we examine or on the level of interaction. Consider their goals. What do they want to accomplish? And uh, most uh, secular uh, goals would be good functioning in life. Okay? So one of the things when you read a, a diagnosis, you, you read something in the DSM, it'll give the list of things. But one of the ways that they differentiate between you have this condition or you don't have this condition is does it stop you from having a successful life? Okay? Does it stop you? Does it affect your day-to-day life? If it does, then it's an illness. If it doesn't, then it's not. So there is a condition uh, called synesthesia. Has anyone ever heard of synesthesia? Okay, so synesthesia is is, uh, the opposite of anesthesia, okay? Anesthesia is when you have no senses. Synesthesia is kind kind of the opposite. You have the same senses. Basically, the way it works, a very small fraction of people would describe this, that when they... They, their senses combine together. So that like orange has a taste or middle C has a color, all right? So uh, a lot of professional musicians would have the musical version of this where they sit and they listen to music and it gives them a perception of color, okay? So it's a whole thing, it's, it's, it's super interesting. But it's not considered like a diagnosis because it doesn't, hurt that person in their functioning life, right? So the goal of all these diagnoses and all of this process is to make someone function better. Is that the goal of Christian interaction with the sufferer? Is my goal when I deal with someone who's suffering to stop them from suffering? No. Do I want them to be stopped from suffering? Yeah. Do am I, do I, should I have compassion on their suffering? Absolutely. But when you read the Psalms, how many of the Psalms are uh, David or another psalmist expressing their sorrow and despair and trust in God? And at the end of the Psalm, there is no less sorrow and despair. I, I, I'm blanking on which one it is. I think it's like 81. The, the, the last line of the Psalm is darkness is my only friend. That's where we end. That, that's not the most optimistic approach to life, but it's actually biblical. Because the gospel calls us to suffer well because the joy that's set before us, right? So we, our goal is not to necessarily alleviate suffering. Where we can alleviate suffering, should we? I would say yes. Is that the goal? No. So you can see how those different goals are going to have a dramatically different approach to uh, our interactions with someone who is suffering. Dramatically different because of different goals. So then, when we do all those things, we can evaluate. What must we reject? What can we clarify? What should we learn? Are there things in this model that we ought to just wholesale reject? This is inherently, deeply unbiblical. We're not going to try and be like, oh, this, this unbiblical thing. What can I learn from it? No, we say this is unbiblical. It is wrong, and we reject it. That will need to happen when you interact with worldviews that reject the God of the Bible, reject the nature of humanity, and reject the effects of sin and the need for repentance. There will be things that you must reject out of hand that are just inherently wrong. But there are also things that we can clarify. I think cognitive behavioral therapy is a good example of that. This idea of controlling the thoughts, responding better to the external uh, impulses, the external uh, inputs, 
and thinking better. I can look at that list of cognitive distortions and be like, oh, overgeneralization. This happened this time, so it's going to happen every time. Mind reading. Oh, this person said this, but I know what they actually thought when they said this was this. And so I'm going to feel hurt by the thing that I think they thought, not the thing that they actually said. Right? We've all been there. We, we, we understand. You, if you Google cognitive distortions, you'll be like, oh. Uh, you'll, you'll see them. You, you do these things. And so I might look at that and be like, that's really helpful. But when my thinking is disordered, sometimes I need to correct it. Sometimes I need to repent. And cognitive behavioral therapy, it doesn't have repentance, at least not gospel repentance, not repentance that recognizes ultimately the one offended is the Lord of creation, not just I need to change my behavior sort of repentance, but genuine biblical repentance. And so I might need to clarify something. I might be able to just learn some things. I might be able to learn that, oh, wow, these two things often go together. That explains something I'm interacting with with this person who I care about. I, I ought to know that there's, there's complexities here, and I can learn about those complexities. Uh, dealing with trauma, I might learn things like if someone is in a particularly uh, having some sort of flashback, having some sort of major reaction to their situation, they might need me to hold them if it's a child, right? That, that there's those sorts of impulses we can learn uh, from. But as we evaluate, we recognize that at the heart of it is a soul in relationship with God that needs comfort, hope, repentance, all of the biblical characteristics, not with the goal of making them feel better, hopefully with that effect at times, but with the goal of them honoring the Lord so that the person may continue to suffer, but they suffer with joy in their hope in God. Uh, we are going to have to finish this uh, page of notes next week. There is one thing that I want to do. I want us to evaluate together a, uh, a serious psychological work of literature. So, uh, unfortunately, I have to look this way to read it. We're going to read The Berenstain Bears Get the Gimmies. Uh, let's approach this book with some of that mindset that we've talked about. We have a theological worldview, they're going to make some good observations, they're going to make some bad observations, and we can actually bring the gospel to bear, bring scripture to bear, and interpret... Ah, I didn't even know what I was doing. Uh, but we can, we can use scripture to see strengths, weaknesses, flaws that come with this. I, credit where credit's due on almost all this stuff. I'm very heavily dependent on... Um, David Paulison recently passed away of cancer at CCF. Ed Welch um, and Mike Emlett. All three have written and taught different things. They've taken a theology and secular psychology class with Paulison that was really helpful. This was actually one of the assignments. We had to write a paper on this book. A very normal postgraduate sort of uh, response, uh, thing to do. Uh, of course, the members of the Bears family, Bear family who lived in the big tree house down a sunny dirt road in Bear Country loved each other. They loved each other very much. Brother and sister bear loved their mama and papa. Naturally, mama and papa bear loved their cubs, and of course they were nice to them, as nice as they could be. But sometimes, sometimes they were a little too nice. Sometimes the cubs got too many treats, too many toys, and too many rides on the bucking duck at the mall. 
Maybe that's why brother and sister bear got the gimmies. Maybe it was because there were treats, toys, and fun things to do whenever they, wherever they looked, at the supermarket, at the mall, on TV, and just about everywhere. Maybe that was why they began making a fuss to get what they wanted, especially at the supermarket checkout, where they were always stacks and stacks of candy and other goodies. Now, cubs, Mama Bear said as the family got in the checkout line and she saw the old gimme gleam in their eyes, we can't have a big fuss every time we pass candy. I simply won't stand for it. But Mama, whined sister, they have gummy gumballs, my favorite. And Chewy Chompers, my favorite wine brother. Now hush, said Mama. I simply won't listen to another word. That's when Papa Bear smiled and said, Now, Mama, you're only young once, and handed the cubs their favorite treats. It's only too true, said Mama, as they were leaving the supermarket, that you're only young once. But that's all the more reason to learn proper behavior while you're still young. And I certainly think, look, look, shouted sister, a new ride. Hey, a bucking frog, shouted brother. That looks even better than the bucking duck. May we ride it, please? May we, may we, please? Now, Papa had just bought them treats, and he thought that was enough for one day. But the cubs made such a fuss that he sighed, dug into his pocket, and put some money in the slot. Papa looked at Mama and shrugged. Cubs will be cubs, he said. It may be true that cubs will be cubs, said Mama, as they started walking across the parking lot to their car. But that's no excuse for jumping up and down and making a scene every time they see something they want. Look, look, shouted the cubs once again. Little rubber cats that stick out their tongues when you squeeze them. Cubs, said Mama, that will be quite enough. I don't want to hear another word. Oh, please, they shouted. May we have them? Please, please, please. Papa decided it was time to put a stop to all the fussing. Stop that fussing, he said in his loudest Papa Bear voice. But they were making such a commotion they didn't even hear him. Sister was jumping up and down so hard that she fell over backwards, started kicking her feet in the air. Please, please, shouted the cubs so loudly that the whole parking lot took notice. Err, said embarrassed Papa, the toy seller. Two of those rubber pussycats, please. The rubber pussycats not only stuck out their tongues when you squeeze them, they went squeak, squeak as well, and they squeak, squeaked all the way home. Mama was quite annoyed by the time they got back to the house, but Papa was so angry he, he could hardly speak. It wasn't until the cubs had gone about their business and Mama had made a pot of tea that Papa's voice came back loud and clear. Of all the outrageous, disgraceful, embarrassing behavior I have ever seen, he roared. That selfish, greedy performance by our cubs was the worst. Brother and sister have the worst case of the galloping, greedy gimmies I have ever seen. Yes, said Mama, calmly sipping her tea. But have you ever stopped to think about why they have the gimmies? Perhaps their greedy behavior isn't all their fault. Perhaps it's partly our fault for giving in every time they make a fuss. Papa listened quietly. Perhaps so, he said. It's up to us, she continued, to explain things to them, to help them understand why it's important not to be greedy. Then Papa called the cubs in for a talking to. He told them why it wasn't a good idea to be selfish and greedy and want everything in sight. Selfish, greedy cubs, he explained, can never be happy because you just can't have everything you want all the time. Life isn't like that. Do you understand? Oh, yes, Papa, we understand, they said. He talked to them about coming, counting their blessings, which meant enjoying the things they had instead of forever wanting more and more. Does that make sense to you, he asked. Oh, yes, Papa, they said it makes a lot of sense. That's when the cubs heard the sound of a familiar car door. It was Grizzly Gramps and Gran come to call. Brother and sister ran to the front door, and as Gramps and Gran came up the steps, they made the biggest fuss yet. What'd you bring me, they screamed. What'd you bring me, what'd you bring me? That did it. Up to your room, roared Papa. Up to your room and no TV or treats for a week, for a month, for a year. 
The cubs knew this wasn't the time to argue. They scurried up the stairs and into the room. We seem to have come at a bad time, said Gran. What about these things we brought with us? Asked Gramps, a puzzle for brother and a top for sister. Your presents will have to wait, Gramps answered Mama. I'm afraid brother and sister have a bad case of the gimmies. The galloping greedy gimmies, added Papa. The worst case I've ever seen. The cubs opened their door a crack to listen. The worst case, you say, said Gramps, looking Papa in the eye. Seems to me you were quite a gimme cub yourself when you were little. Brother and sister sneaked to the top of the stairs so they could hear better. I was, said Papa. Of course, we didn't have malls or supermarkets back then, but, was, uh, but there was old Roof Grizzly's general store. Wonderful place, sold just about everything. Honey cake, liquor sticks, molasses apples, and all sorts of toys and novelties. Did you ever have the gimmies? Did you ever? You wanted everything in sight. Downright embarrassing. Well, it got so bad, we couldn't go there anymore. So we worked out a deal, said Grant. When it came time for a trip to the general store, we had you decide on a treat ahead of time. It could be a sweet, a toy, a book, and that was it for the day. Right, said Gramps, and if you come down with the gimmies, we went right home and you got nothing. That sounds like a pretty good plan to me, said Mama. Me too, said Papa. The cubs tiptoed back to the room. It sounded okay to them too. The next time the Bear family went to the supermarket, they tried the Gramps and Grand plan, and it worked. Brother decided he would get a book about dinosaurs. Sister wanted a new box of crayons. Mama and Papa were very proud when the cubs passed the candy rack without so much as a peep. Brother and sister were pretty proud of themselves too. But they heard it. The familiar sound of a cub with a bad case of the gimmies. The kicking, screaming cub was just behind them in the checkout line. You never heard such a fuss. What outrageous, disgraceful, embarrassing behavior, said sister. May we leave? Yeah, said brother. Let's get out of here. And that's how brother and sister bear got rid of a pretty bad case of the galloping, greedy gimmies. All right. So let's evaluate the model of behavior and godliness that the Berenstain Bears uses in dealing with the galloping, greedy, grumpy gimmies. What do they see well? What do they see with clarity? It's an issue. Okay, I would think, I would say that's not a thing that they see well. They, they see a problem, right? They, they see a, a problem, greediness. Why is greediness a problem, according to the Berenstain Bears? Embarrasses mom and dad. Okay, parents, ever been there? Yeah, yeah, not me. It's inconvenient for mom and dad. It's unsustainable. It's exhausting. What else? It causes bad behavior. It almost gets at a heart issue, right? Like the behavior is the external. The, the desires are the problem. Okay. It doesn't work, right? Like you, you can't go through life like that. You can't get what you want. Are all those things that the Berenstain Bears sees accurate? Is it helpful to see those things? Sure. How many of you as parents have used those arguments with your kids in convincing them not to do wrong? You don't actually have to raise your hands. I'm assuming all of you would, but I won't make you out yourself. Uh, it, it sees that pretty clearly. It sees that a solution needs to be found, right? They're not actually okay with just allowing the behavior to continue. Like we've all seen parents who are okay with that behavior continuing, or at least they're okay in their behaviors towards the behavior. They're not dealing with the behavior. Okay, what, what else do they see clearly? That they're part of the problem. How many parents do you wish would say, hey, you're actually the person rewarding the bad behavior and you get what you reward. 
right? So they're seeing a lot of things clearly. What are they not seeing clearly? What was that? They still give it to them. Okay, so they're, they're, they're still giving them what they want. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's teaching them constrained greed. It's okay to be greedy, just not as greedy as the kid behind you in line. Right? So they're, they're teaching them that greed is okay as long as it's a reasonable amount of greed. It's kind of the same idea as the, the little white lie, right? Some sins are okay in small measure, okay? What else are they missing? Right. The, what is the problem? What biblical sin and righteousness term could we use to describe what, the, what brother bear and sister bear are feeling, are doing, I should say? They're coveting. Disobedient, quick to anger. These are all biblical concepts. Do mom, mama and papa bear deal with any of those biblical concepts at all? No, and they actually respond with some of those sin issues themselves. Yes. I mean, it's, it's almost it's all, like you read it and it's almost like the authors get it. And it's almost like a satire on the parents, right? Like you all, but it's not. But it it feels like that where you just see the parents. And it's almost uncanny how clearly they illustrate the fallenness of the human condition when mom and dad do the same thing that the kids do. But they miss that that's what they're illustrating, right? But they miss what's going on at the heart. What is the solution for brother and sister bear? Contentment and I don't know what the bare equivalent of God is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, contentment in contentment in the Lord. Contentment in what they have, what they are given. That's actually the solution. It's not giving them a little bit. It's not prior negotiation so that they're prepared. Are all those things inherently bad? I, I, I want to put my kids in a place where they can succeed. So, like, not so much anymore, thankfully. But I remember a time in my life where the five-minute warning was very important, right? We're going to be leaving in five minutes, okay? So you guys need to be ready. Is it a sin for them to need five minutes warning in order to not sin? I would actually say, yeah, right? That, it's not dealing with the heart. But do I want to put them in the best position I can for them to succeed? I don't want to provoke them to wrath, right? So I give them the five-minute warning, but that's ultimately not dealing with the sin heart issue, is it? And so with, the, with this book, it's actually doing what a lot of secular therapy psychologies are going to do. It's going to see a picture clearly. It's going to provide some life hacks that might deal with it. It's going to provide some symptom alleviation, And it's going to completely bypass the thing it doesn't believe exists, the human soul. And so as we are helping other people and dealing with our own souls and our own struggles, we can look around at the world and what it has to offer. And it might offer helpful tips, tools, tricks. 
It cannot offer the grace that comes from Christ through repentance. It cannot offer the ultimate hope and comfort that maybe this situation never gets better. Maybe this suffering that you have never gets better until the day you die. And then all things are made new. But it can't, it can't give that hope. right? It's outside of the fundamental presuppositions that the model brings to bear on life. Right? So I hope this is kind of equipping you, helping you to see that... The modern secular mental health movement does not need to say everything wrong. We don't need to think that it gets every single thing wrong and that it doesn't make good observations. But anything, anything that misses the fundamental nature of who we are, who God is, is not going to ultimately provide a satisfactory answer to any of our struggles and suffering. And so if you want to help people, and we will talk more next week about getting to the person at the heart of trouble and engaging with sufferers. We're going to talk about that more next week. And I think we're going to talk about it again the last week of the series. As we do those things, as we move into those places, we can take a great deal of encouragement that the complexities, the scary things, the things that are different about some of these uh, families of so-called mental illness that we run into and feel scary and feel like we have nothing to offer, we have a lot to offer. It might not be getting the voices to stop. Right? We might not be able to do that. But we can offer true, lasting hope that allows for people to be godly in their suffering. Um, and so we ought to be encouraged, not intimidated, but encouraged. Yes, there is a world out there that has a lot of research and thought and theories and opinions on what happens within the mind of the person. But we have an authoritative truth in the word of God of who the person is and how they relate to the creator of the universe and how they must relate to the creator of the universe and how they can be godly. All right. Uh, we have just a couple, we have two minutes. If there are any questions that can fit into two minutes, we can do that. I have a question, but I, I seem to recall that there are some bills in heaven that include Bible verses, but I don't recall if they actually do a good job of. Yeah, I have not done a detailed server, survey of all of the literature. <laughs> I believe they claim to be Christians. Right? I, 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 I say claim to be Christians. I'm not trying to say that if you write that, you can't be a Christian. I think we all parent like that. And we all ought to be rebuked for it. And we ought to repent of it. But we all do it. And, and so, yeah, I think they do have some. I, I did not hear the last sentence you said. Can you just finish the illustration and talk about how addressing it biblically, if they would have it correctly, how it needs to have comfort? Sure. So before I do that, CCF offers a series of children's books that focus on things like this. I think they're uh, little tr big truths for young hearts, something like that, that actually takes a really biblical model of dealing with these things. So how, how should we address these things? We ought to 
talk to our children as much as possible about the heart, right? Now, the conversations you can have with Quinn about her heart situation are going to be very different from the conversation I can have with Haddon, right? But we're not encouraging people to do right because it works better. We're encouraging people to do right because they live before God and because that's the most important. So Mama and Papa Bear need to teach their kids about contentment and they need to teach their kids about thankfulness in Christ and bring to bear those biblical concepts to their lives. Now, that might also involve strategizing some plans for how to not have it be done in the moment where the kids aren't going to do well and mom and dad aren't going to be doing well. Like the time for deep spiritual conversations is not in the middle of a fight, right? You're very rarely husbands and wives. You're going back and forth. You're fighting about something. Very rarely is that the time for you to be like, you know, I really want to talk to you about your sin. <laughs> because usually your sin's on the table too, right? As opposed to saying, hey, we need to actually have a serious conversation with one another and strategize to do it well, not at three o'clock in the morning when you're both frustrated with each other, okay? Uh, so I would say strategizing, thinking through it, like the bears did, is a good thing, but your aim is getting to, to the heart of contentment. Yeah? Um, maybe talk a little bit about, you mentioned like the goal of biblical help isn't to get over or help people get out of their suffering. Mm-hmm. If we're honest, most people that come with real mental health issues or mm-hmm. real struggles of schizophrenia, they want to get over it. Mm-hmm. That's their goal. Yeah. And the Bible does address some issues. If I'm experiencing anxiety and panic attacks, mm-hmm. sometimes that's apart from issues that I'm in control of. Maybe it is due to trauma or something like that. Right. But other times, the Lord does address and give your hope to mm-hmm. be able to overcome it. Right. And I think sometimes that's where we you have like this secular gap between biblical because it's almost like, well, if they're not helping me come get get over this struggle, I need to get help. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to get help or I'm gonna kill someone. Maybe mm-hmm. depress new mamas and speak of. And just talking about Bible verses isn't helping me get over that and I might I am thinking of killing my child. Yeah. Yeah, so we there are repentance and comfort are both going to have meaningful effects on the person's life. It's not just an entirely abstract, hey, everything's gonna be okay when you get to heaven, so move on, right? We are actually going to be entering into people's lives. A lot of our mental struggles are sin issues. A lot of them are sin issues. And repentance and dealing with the sin issue will deal with that. So take, take a sort of... Um, intense postpartum depression, like uh, what Charity's talking about there. there. There might be some conversations to be had. In fact, I'd say there probably are some conversations to be had with a doctor. Like this is biological, all right? This is going on. Your hormones did just, just did some real wacky stuff, all right? So that biological, talk to your doctor about it. Some of it's also going to be sin. And that's really the rest of what we were planning on talking about this morning uh, is the complexities. And just as a preview, you can see the chart on the back. There are all sorts of factors coming into our life. We live in God's world. There's spiritual warfare going on. Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Our own mind does its own thing. 
uh, relationships affect us, the expectations of society affect us, and any sort of struggle that we have is going to be a complex mix of those things. We should not oversimplify from a spiritual perspective and be like, slap a Bible verse on it and call me in the morning, right? That, that's, that's what's not okay. Um, nor should we boil it all down to body. That's all physical, right? So when we're dealing with something like that, a deep postpartum depression, deal with the body, deal with sin, provide comfort. Will that alleviate symptoms? I would expect that it would, right? Like I would expect that the intensity, I don't think we're calling people to always want to kill themselves and just keep saying no. But ultimate hope, this gets better. It's not a fight because a lot of time that's what we, we, we mean. So when we're talking about a sin issue, like a, a man who would claim to have a sexual addiction and he wants to get victory over that, what he wants is to not want to sin, right? He wants to not have to keep saying no. What he should be doing is to, well, someday not want to sin, but say no and keep saying no, even though the desire it doesn't just completely go away, right? And so when we're dealing with those sorts of issues, we're going to be calling that person to fight well. That will alleviate some of the suffering. It's not a promise that, there's, that they're now going to always be looking on the sunny side of life, right? That some people are going to just fall more on that negative spectrum in a way that's not sinful, right? It's okay for me to be a person who recognizes risk, and for someone else to be a person who is more optimistic, right? Both of those can be sinful. Both of those can be godly. They're just different. Um, and so that we're not promising that everyone is going to be flattened into one perfectly functioning human being that's not different from anyone else. All right, that is more than the time we have. So you guys are dismissed.